Amen. That's great. Thank you. It was set for Bill. Ray, I saw you trying to look over the lip of the music stand to see it. Where'd you go, Ray? Somewhere around here. Okay. All right. Um, as you open your Bibles with me, uh, we'll pray together and then questions from this morning. Let's bow together. Um, what privilege, Father, to hold your word, to possess it, to trust it, to read it, to know it, to know that life is revealed to us through these words. And so now make us good stewards of this privilege and this time and this opportunity. And let us embrace with joy the course set before us and the truths that we hold. Give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, from this morning, any questions that you might have? Um, I'm going to grab a stool and sit down on it. Uh, any questions you might have pertaining to or maybe commentary on something you um, picked up from what we shared this morning. There's that awkward, quiet moment, but I'm always okay with that. Yes, you're right, Mary. It's challenging for us, isn't it? Yeah, especially people outside of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I think somebody over here, Paul. Um, the word in its root uh, is is the word gut. Because in Jewish and Greek culture, the Jewish culture beforehand used the word and then they used the Greek word that was similar to it. It means that you see something and it goes beyond mental perception into something greater where you actually connect with it with some kind of concern for the temporal and eternal well-being of that thing that you see. It's something that moves you at the deepest part of your life. Uh, it's something that you care enough to be affected by the sight of it. Often when it's used in the New Testament... It's used in light of something. In other words, it's in, used in light of a truth. Paul will give a truth and then he'll say there should be a, something behind that. There should be a feeling that moves us behind that truth, that feeling called compassion. When Paul uses it, he uses it to describe the kind of love we have for each other and the kind of love we have for Christ. 
When Jesus, when it's used about Jesus, and it's the most frequent word used about Jesus' emotional life in the New Testament, um, it's almost always Jesus sees, and the word that is used there is the word to perceive. It's beyond just the act of uh, physically seeing. It's perceiving. It's, it's understanding. And then the compassion comes behind that. And you see that on several occasions in Jesus' ministry. He sees. He's moved with compassion. He sees. He's moved with compassion. He sees, and he's filled with compassion. And so I guess the best definition is something that concerns us enough to move us deep inside. It's related almost always to love. It seems to never be divorced from or separated from the idea of genuine love. And so um, that's the best I think I can do with such a complex emotion. But I think we know it when we feel it. You know what I'm saying? It's, there's, uh, that's why um, the television commercials would show you a starving child. And immediately, you know, you're dialing. Because you're going, I, got, I am moved by this, I've got to do something with it. And so it's something that, that, that stirs you so much so that you have a physical manifestation of an emotional event. And so you feel it. So, thank you, Paul. Is that helpful? Uh, I hope. I kind of rambled on that. Okay, other questions you might have or observations from this morning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 How do I balance with wisdom helping somebody? Yes, yes. And I think that that's why when we see Jesus' ministry, and this is where the gospel seems to always get off track. I talked about conservatives and liberals this morning in, in, in church settings. Um, where it gets off track is when it's not both message and ministry together. They're always wed to each other. If it's just ministry, it can easily become enabling because it's disconnected from the truth of calling people to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And if it's just calling people repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, it never connects with them at where they're really at and, and where their brokenness is. And so these two are always wed. You've got Jesus going, teaching, and healing. Now, let me ask you all something. Do all of us have the gift of healing? No, we don't. So how do we cope with that? Well, we have the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan didn't just lay the hands on the guy and say, Lord... I want you to, to cause his bleeding to stop. Now, Jesus did that sometimes. Didn't he cause the woman's bleeding to stop? Okay, so th- we're not talking that, that that's never going to happen. Sometimes God is going to just, he's going to drop in and he's going to surprise everybody. Okay? But in the story of the Good Samaritan, you see a guy who pours oil on the guy's wounds and binds him up. So that means that it wasn't, there was no miraculous moment there. Where had the miracle occurred in the parable of the, good, of the story of the Good Samaritan? Where did the miracle occur? Huh? Before that. In his heart. 
The miracle of the Good Samaritan story is that this guy was regenerate. He was redeemed. He was born again. He was a born-again Samaritan, which was really hard for people to perceive. And so the miracle had occurred in this man's heart before he stopped. And so therefore, the miraculous was an internal thing. So what does he do? He binds the guy's wounds up. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to the inn. He treats his wounds. And he puts him under the innkeeper's care and says, I'll take care of him. And so you have always bound together ministry to the physical, emotional, social needs and message. And these things have to be bound together. And either one in absence of the other is always. It's going to be, if it's too much into the just the ministry, it's going to be enabling. Something Mary is concerned about, certainly, and we, we ought to. If it's too much in just the repentance and faith in Jesus, it's almost judgmental. It's like you, you don't identify with my condition. You don't understand where my distresses are and where I really am. And so, Good, Mary, great point. Okay, others? Carol. Yeah. Okay. Now, the the skin is peeled off was actually a definition of the word distressed. When you when you see the person, the skin is peeled off, the flaying of the skin. It's a physical manifestation of somebody's deep emotional hurts. Downcast means they're thrown down, they're thrown out, they're thrown away. Sheep without shepherd. But the definition of motive was that I have been neighbored. (laughs) That's it. I've been neighbored. How's that work? Well, Jesus was my neighbor. He had no reason to love me. I was his enemy. But he neighbored me. Jesus is the one who stopped on the way and found me laying in my sin, laying in my brokenness, laying in my death. And he bound up my wounds and he picked me up and he took me to his father and said, here, I'll pay for him. Hello? I'll not only pay what he already owes, I'll pay any future debt. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. So compassion is... Uh, excuse me, motive is when this has already happened to me. I'll never be good at compassion until I have been a recipient of it. I'll never be a good neighbor till I've been neighbored. And Jesus neighbored me. I was his enemy. I was laying in the street. He stops and he intervenes and he picks me up and he delivers me to his Father and I'm saved. And it's a pure act of sovereign grace. He does it because he wants to. Not because I deserve it, not because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, worthy of it. He, he does it because He loves me. And so, the best idea of motive there, Carol, is I've been neighbored. It's occurred to me. I am going to have the right motive for compassion when I've been a recipient of compassion. And I think that's what, why the story was woven, the story of the Good Samaritan was woven the way it was. So rather, if it had been a Jew rescuing a Samaritan, the Jew would have said one of two things. Well, that's ridiculous. Or he said, of course we rescue those rotten guys. We're the good guys. But when the Samaritan's rescuing the Jew, the Jew has to see himself as a recipient of a foreign love. And for any of us to be loved by God, we have to be the recipient of a foreign love. Good, good question, Carol. 
Kevin? People. Switchfoot does a song, and in one of the songs, it talks about driving through town in our comfortable Lexus cages. And we, we sanitize our lives by trying to shut out anything dangerous. You know, that's, that's just it's, it's a response. And, and I'm not saying we ought to be careless. But I'm, I'm also not saying that, that I think everything in the gospel is careful. Jesus' ministry is not careful in the sense of always seeking self-preservation. He takes the, the disciples into the worst places. And when we see the story of the Good Samaritan, the guy, <clears throat> historians tell us that there was a pass on the Jericho Road. All the people that Jesus was telling the story to, by the way, knew. It was like, it was like telling the story of one of those old roads that everybody traveled on and there was always a wreck on it. You, you know, there's places that we've heard that. We, we have this road in Ecuador that we travel, and during the first about six years that we traveled that, there was always a fatality when we traveled that road. Now, they've expanded that road and put guardrails up. When we started it, there were no guardrails, and it was a little two-lane road. And uh, when back in 1953, when um, Elizabeth Elliot was there prior to Mary and Jim Elliott, the road took eight hours to make that journey. And uh, it was one way. It would open up in the morning, eight hours, and it would get up, they'd count the last car, and they'd have eight hours make back down, 16 hours of travel um, a day. One group going up, one group going down. And there were always fatalities when we were there. And so when they told the Jericho Road story, it was a story about everybody knew that road, and everybody knew people got killed on it. There was one particular place, very dangerous, this pass that they went through. It was called the Pass of Blood or the Blood Pass, and it was where everybody got murdered and where you only would go through there as a group in order to be safe, and even then it was pretty dangerous. And so when he's telling this story and this guy stops, he stops in the most dangerous area. He stops in the place that a guy's already been knocked down and left for dead and robbed and stripped. He stops there. The, the two Jewish guys, they, they go on the other side of the road and say, well, we need to be safe here. And so this guy puts himself at risk, and only a compassionate heart that's been redeemed, that's been neighbored, will stop and neighbor others at our own personal risk. So, yeah, Kevin, it's, it's a challenge to get out of our comfort zone. That whole salt shaker, salt packet thing is really working on me. It started working on me. The full idea just came to me last night. I was at Sam's last night, by the way, as they were closing, buying those salt packets because the idea just came yesterday in, in the fullness. And, and, and those little packets are really sanitary and they're really safe and they're really pure and... and, and <laughs> And very ineffective until they're torn open. And I think the challenge for our lives is to really let God tear us open and start shaking us out all over the place in the dangerous places, as Jesus did. Other questions? Kevin, you want to follow up on that? Okay. Yes. That's why I'm so excited about Gospel Community Church as a plant out of our church. It's... It's raised a lot of eyebrows downtown because they're saying, why y'all want to come down here? This is the bad place. 
And Jason Harrington says, well, that's where we need to be. He's moved down there. He sold his house in Pineville, and he's moved down there. This is, this is beautiful. And those of you who've met Mimi and saw her testimony and watched her work here in our own church, goodness, if that's the fruit that church is producing, give us a thousand of them. Give us a thousand of them. It's awesome. Well, the front cover of Christianity Today, if you could go online and read that, is uh, it's called Slumdog Missionaries. And it's our missionaries that are moving into the slums and giving up life as normal and living in the middle of the slums and raising their kids there and evangelizing. And it looks really just like Jesus. Somebody else started to say something. Jeffrey. Yeah, and I think there's a place, Jeffrey, where my friend Chuck Wood has taught me a whole lot, and it's, it's just being sensitive to the Spirit of God. If, we, if we're motivated by guilt, we'll make a lot of mistakes just trying to go out and make something happen. But if we're motivi- motivated by compassion, it seems that the Spirit will, will enable and, and give us wisdom where to stop, when to stop, how to stop, and all of those things. And I think that that will become the norm for us. And... Um, I think that that sensitivity is produced by the Spirit Himself. I think we we all, <clears throat> as I've aged, I've become a lot safer. And in some of it, to, to my disgrace. Some of it was in disobedience. I, I, sometimes we have conversations about people and about missions and they say, well, I'm never going to ride an airplane or I'm never going to live in a jungle or I'm never going to do these things. And I think, well, you may be never going to do anything then. If fear is the thing that's going to captivate us all, what are we ever going to do? And I don't think everybody needs to get on an airplane. I don't think everybody needs to live in the jungle. But I think everybody needs to say, whatever you want, Lord. <laughs> because sometimes the scariest thing is walking next door. Am I right? Am I and sometimes the scariest thing is sitting down with our own family and sharing the gospel. You can get on a plane, you can fly to Brazil, you can get on the plane and fly to Africa, but, but sitting down with a relative and explaining the gospel, we're scared to death of. And so sometimes the scariest thing is you know, the thing that we need to be on the lookout for, be careful about. Tom.
Go to Jesus. That's exactly right. What Tom was saying is that he was raising the issue of my friend Chuck Wood who reads two chapters of the Gospels every day. And I was not exaggerating today, by the way. You know how preachers exaggerate. Um, I was not exaggerating. Chuck has read two chapters of the Gospels for 30 years almost every single day. And it's part of his testimony. And if you meet Chuck Wood, one of the things you're going to know is that he acts like Jesus. And he's surprisingly like Jesus. It's, a, it's refreshing to be with him. And this whole family's that way. So, good, Tom. And I think we are challenged with going to the Gospels and being familiar with how Jesus handled things. Okay. Anyone else? All right, let's dive in. We've got uh, seven minutes, and I can do two things in seven minutes, um, and, and, I'll, and I'll be... Short and sweet. I'm always short. I'm not always sweet. Uh, if we're talking height, okay, not sermons. Okay. Um, I want to I familiarize you with something that Jesus said in Matthew 9 that he repeats again in Luke 10. And so I want you to go to verse 37, and I want you to contemplate something and, and, and let this kind of run through your mind and, and provoke some discussion maybe in your own heart first and then with others. Um, you see in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, you, seeing the multitude, he felt compassion for them. For they're flayed, they're skinned. These people, are, they're, they're just tore up. And they're downcast, they're outcast, they're throwaways. And they're, they're prey, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're in grave danger temporally and eternally. So there's, there's this danger going on there. And then Jesus says something that he says again in Luke 10 and he refers to in John 4. He says in Luke, uh, in, in verse 37 of Matthew 9, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now here's why. To step into somebody's life, to go, to teach, to heal, and to see is incredibly, painfully overwhelming. When you become familiar with somebody else's stuff and they begin to vomit their life out onto your table, it is really hard. Drive-by evangelism is easy. Track distribution, which I'm, I'm, I'm a track distributor. I, you go to lunch with me, you know I'll always share a track with someone. And if, if I get an opportunity, I love, I'm a track, I'm for it. <laughs> I think it's great. But, man, that's easy. Getting close enough to somebody to see how they've been flayed, to see why they're outcast, and to see how, danger, how endangered they are spiritually and emotionally and eternally, it's hard. And that's why the workers are few. The workers are few because it's work. It's hard work. It's don't sleep at night work. It's wrestle and struggle 
It's emotionally draining. It's physically demanding. People whose lives you step into and begin to love, they begin to try to do what the New Testament commands. They instinctively think that this call to bear one another's burdens is a real thing. And so they begin to lay their burdens on your shoulder. And you begin to bear the weight of their flaying, their their pain, their emotions, their distress, their outcastness. You begin to bear the pain of the fact that without a shepherd, they just keep wandering away. It just drives you crazy. Tom, do they keep wandering away? They just keep wandering away. It's like, don't you get it? That's why... There's not many laborers. Because the kind of ministry that Jesus calls us to cannot be conducted from inside the salt packet. It demands being torn open and sprinkled out. And it will sap you of your energy physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And you will only be able to do it if there is a supernatural resource from which you draw. Otherwise, this is impossible. So, the reason the workers are few is that it's work. It's hard work and it's painful work and sometimes it's very unsuccessful. Sometimes someone that you pour your life into will stand up and walk away. They'll just leave. And they'll take a piece of you with them. And you'll hurt. Remember Jesus and Judas? What did Jesus pour into that man? And he up and walks away and betrays him with a kiss. As if affection is okay when you're betraying somebody. And so it's hard, hard work. Okay, I got one of the things done. Let me try to get the other one done. And, and maybe I can. Here we go. The story, and I'm going to do an in-depth thing in this a little bit further down the road, but the story of the Good Samaritan doesn't just tell us the mandate of, 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 of what neighboring looks like. Compassion and intervention. and It doesn't just tell us the mandate of it. It tells us the magnitude of it. How big do I do this? It answers the three questions that we put up. Who? Who? If we saw an Islamic terrorist laying on the side of the street in our neighborhood, would we help him? That's what you have in the Jew and Gentile, the Jew and Samaritan story. These guys were avowed enemies and they were out to destroy each other. And so at what point do we say who? What this does is it removes it and says, who is your neighbor? If they're a human being, love your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Pray for those who persecute you. And so this 
Gospel neighboring says we cannot limit our neighboring by who. Second, we can't limit our neighboring by when. Because the Jews and the Samaritans were at such odds with each other, they thought that each other deserved the divine judgment and cataclysmic end-time finality of God. That's why when they're passing through the Samaritan villages and the Samaritans won't welcome Jesus, the disciples turn around and look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you want we should call down fire from heaven? Because that's what they thought each other deserved. They looked at them, they sized them up and said, these guys just need to go to hell. That's what they need. That's what they deserve. And so when the Samaritan comes upon the Jew, he could have easily, with an unredeemed heart, looked at him and said, dude, is he getting what he deserves or what? Yes! <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Get, very easily, he could have done that. With an unredeemed heart, that's how a Samaritan would feel toward a Jew and a Jew would feel toward Samaritan. They were arch rivals. They were enemies. They hated. They wanted to call fire down on each other and eliminate each other. And so here, the win, here's the deal. Jesus never says, you do good when they deserve it. Now, you do good whether they deserve it or not. What about us? Didn't God do good to us when we did not deserve it? If the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is kind of represented in the Samaritan, did Jesus do While we were yet sinners, Christ died. He did good to us when we were still enemies with Him. And so, this doing of good... We don't wait until they deserve it. We do it now. And third, he answers the question of how much. How much do we do? What are the limits? Do we stay safe? Well, this guy didn't stay safe. The Samaritan risked himself by taking up the position of vulnerability, kneeling down. When you start to kneel down and take care of somebody, your whole backside's vulnerable. And so here's a guy vulnerable in the same place that this man's been robbed, beaten, stripped, left for dead. He makes himself vulnerable. He kneels down and begins to bind up this man's wound and begins to speak to the man saying, you're my neighbor and I will do good to you in the name of the God I serve. And he begins to pour oil on his wounds and to bind up. That means he's coming in contact with the man's body fluids. He's taking care of him. And he lifts him up and he puts him on his donkey. And now he walks and the guy rides and he gets to the end and here's what he says. I'm going to pay up. And then he says this. And whatever it takes until he's better, I'll pay when I get back. So what he's saying is, the limitation cannot be put by humans. It has to be a limitation only put down by God. That means we have to be sacrificial. Who knows what it would take for that guy to actually be taken care of. And this guy might get back and get a pretty good bill. And so when we're led by God, the who is settled, everybody, even my enemies. The when, whether they deserve it or not, in our mind of deserving. And how much? Well, we do it until we deplete ourselves to the level which God is satisfied with what we've done. And only 
us walking in fellowship with God's going to know when that is. I don't know when that is. There's no rule for it. So um, I, I will read one quote to you and I'll close with this quote. This quote comes from the Emperor Julian. Just before Constantine, the Emperor Julian. And, and here's what he said. He said, atheism, now, when the Emperor Julian says atheism, he's talking about Christianity. Christians were the first atheists. Why? Because they rejected all of the deities of Rome and Greece. All right, they rejected them. So they called Christians atheists for believing in only one God. I thought that's pretty funny. But that's, when he says atheism, he's talking about Christians. Okay, Emperor Julian. Atheism, or Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, they called them godless because they didn't believe in the pantheon of Rome, Greece, Galileans, Peter, that bunch, it is a scandal that not a single Jew is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours, pagan, as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. You see, in, in, in their society, you know, Jews could, took care of Jews, and Romans took care of Romans, pagans took care of pagans, and whatever. Greeks took care of Greeks, and, but Christians took care of everybody. And what distinguished them? They took care of everybody. They did not make a person believe what they believed in order to love them and care for them. And that love was a revolution. Ball, Pineville, Alexandria, Grant needs that revolution. When we will love at that level that everybody looks at the Christians and says, whoa. They love everybody. Let's pray. Lord, um, I am, I'm like Kevin, really, really sensing how enveloped my life is. I'm kind of all enveloped in a little salt packet and everything's so sterile. And I repent. And I know I can't fix that with some little whim or overnight kind of feeling, but I know that You're pouring Your compassion into me as I see myself as the recipient of sovereign grace, the recipient of divine intervention, the recipient that one I was at enmity with rescued me. I see myself laying on the road and You rescued me. I was perishing and You gave me life. And You did it not because I deserved it, but because You loved me. Make that known to my heart and mind. And make that known to our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, Amen. I love y'all. Good night. See y'all on Wednesday, if not before.